Each of us can help bring about meaningful change in the world. If you're looking for a path where your passion and interest in shaping the future will be empowered and encouraged, consider earning a degree in international affairs and diplomacy from Satan Hall University. Join a live webinar to find out how our customizable graduate programs can help you achieve your professional goals. Visit us today at shu.edu slash diplomacy23. Russia will be chairing the Security Council this April. We approached the mission for an interview as we do every month, but it declined. So instead, we will be talking to a foreign policy icon whose footprint in multilateralism traverses time we only read in books, Professor Steven Schlesinger. I am Damilola Banjo. Yes, indeed, Damilola. There are questions I can't wait to ask Professor Schlesinger. He has a seven-decade career spanning journalism, the academia, history, and foreign policy. I am Kelechuku Ogu. Indeed, Kelechuku, a very well-rounded man he is. I'm looking forward to this interview with the professor. On April 3rd, Russia laid out its plan for the month. Let's hear what Ambassador Vasily Nimbenzia said about Moscow's signature events. On the 5th of April at 10 a.m., we intend to host in our national capacity an area formula meeting entitled Children and Armed Conflict, Ukrainian Crisis, Evacuating Children from Conflict Zones. You know that this issue is being discussed in many fora, including UN, and we want to dispel some, uh, some misgivings and, and, uh, and propaganda over that issue that has been uh, waged uh, by certain countries. We will resume our official work next week on Monday, April 10th, straight away with our first signature event, open debate on threats to international peace and security, risks stemming from violations of the agreements regulating the export of weapons and military equipment, with USG Izumi Nakamitsu as a briefer. We expect participants to consider the negative consequences of non-compliance by member states with their obligations in arms and ammunition transfers and identify ways to improve mechanisms for controlling exports of weapons and military equipment. As announced earlier, we expect uh, Minister Lavrov uh, to arrive in New York later in April. He will be chairing our second signature event on April 24th, which is an open debate on maintenance of international peace and security, effective multilateralism through the defense of the principles of the UN Charter. The Secretary General has confirmed his participation as a briefer. We plan to have a comprehensive and strategic forward-looking discussion on the formation of, the, of a new multipolar world uh, order based on sovereign equality, equal rights, and self-determination, 
justice and security, friendly relations and cooperation between nations with full respect of the purposes and principles of the UN Charter. On March 14, Russia convened a meeting at the UN on Russophobia, the fear of everything Russia. Two briefers said people have been banned from speaking Russia in Ukraine. Books and religious relics have been destroyed. They painted a picture of complete hatred for Russia in Europe. But history has numerous evidence of Russia itself doing exactly the things that it is now accusing Ukraine of. Thank you so much, uh, Professor. Can one genuinely, um, can Russia genuinely substantiate, you know, some of its assertions? Do you think they have legitimate grounds to be making these claims? Well, I, I think it, on several different levels, it's an attempt, first of all, to justify to Russia's own people why they have entered this brutal war in which literally thousands of uh, Russian soldiers are being killed almost every week or so. Um, and so they had to come up with a thesis that R Russia's culture, its religion, its uh, fundamental history is all being destroyed by Ukraine. Th to me, this is an act of projection. In fact, what Russia is really saying is that's what it itself is doing to, to Ukraine, but it's simply trying to reverse it and make it look like Ukraine is doing it to Russia. It is basically a, an attempt by Putin to project a winning slogan for his own people and try to convince the West that Russia is the victim, not Ukraine. Let's have a mini history class here, Professor. Ukraine says Russia did not reapply to join the UN after the fall of Soviet Union. Ukraine and other diplomats have said Russia should be disbarred on this ground, along with the human rights abuses committed in Ukraine. When you consider that other Soviet members were already in the UN before 1991, is there any ground to say that Russia should be removed from the UN on that first account, on the account that it didn't reapply to join the fold? Let me answer that question on several different levels. First of all, when the UN was first set up in 1945, there was no condition that a country that had violated human rights could not join the United Nations. Why? Because the UN was set up by the sponsoring nations, the five sponsoring nations at that time, the Soviet Union, the United States, uh, China, uh, France, and Great Britain, on the theory that a security organization should have every country inside the um, assembly because whether it was a dictatorship or a democracy or something in between, you could not create the conditions for peaceful settlement unless all parties were in, in the same organization together. So there was no condition placed on countries joining the UN in 1945 as, as regards human rights violations. But the key issue was security, preventing the outbreak of a third world war. Uh, at the time that the Russian Federation was admitted, there was literally no country in the, in the UN at that time protesting that that happened. It is true that there is some, some ambiguity 
uh, about their joining that people can bring up as a, as a uh, argument. But the fact is that Russian Federation was admitted at that time as of as the permanent member of the UN Security Council. And it has been there for three decades. And I compare it to the legal phrase that is used in American jurisprudence, which is called adverse possession, which means that when a person takes control of a piece of land owned by somebody else, and for 30 years holds on to that, and nobody ever protests it, and everybody basically concedes that that person is the person who possesses that land, it becomes legally their land. And I think the same analogy applies to the admission of the Russian Federation. I might make the point that I think in many ways, it's more important to have Russia inside the UN rather than outside, because at least inside the UN, it is possible for the rest of the world to make global resolutions denouncing Russia's action within the uh, framework of the United Nations itself. Still continuing the history class, Professor, in 1954, the CIA sponsored a coup in Guatemala to remove a duly elected president, Jacobo Guzman. When you put all this together and add the fact that Ukraine is accusing Russia of deporting over 16,000 children. How can UN as a collective give punitive punishment to P5 members, considering you have veto power? And we've not seen this whole conversation around Russia's aggression happen when, like you have reported, and other veteran journalists have reported, when the UN intervenes, and when the USA intervene strongly in other countries. How can the UN as a whole prevent any P5 member from able to do what they want? The power realities of, of 1945, those four five countries were the most powerful nations on the earth. And they were given these quite extraordinary exemptions from the having to obey the UN charter. Back before the United Nations existed, when the League of Nations uh, preceded the UN, every country had the veto in the League of Nations. And that allowed one rogue country to block any action by the League in any, ca- in any event of an of, of a invasion of any sort. So to update the UN, it was decided in San Francisco that there only should be five countries that should be exempt. Now, that was unfair, and it's still seen as unfair today. And there have been many efforts by UN members for the last you know, six or seven decades to reform that structure and either eliminate the veto or expand it. But in any case, that was the uh, only way that the UN was able to be set up because had we had the organization not permitted Russia and at that point, the Soviet Union and the United States in particular to have the veto, neither country would have joined the organization. If and if the Soviet Union and the United States had not joined the organization in 1945, basically it would have hollowed out the UN and made it a lifeless organization without any real authority to it. To address your question, there is very few ways of punishing any of the five permanent members when they act against the UN Charter. I mean, as you can see, 
let's look at Russia today. I mean, the best that can happen is are these unilateral sanctions against Russia uh, by uh, a kind of assembly of willing nations to do so, but they can't really act through the Security Council because Russia will block any action taken on the council using its veto. So it's in, in the case of the permanent members when they violate the charter, the only thing the UN can do is try to shame them, try to you know have the, the General Assembly pass resolutions denouncing them, putting them in a situation where they should show some sort of contrition for what they are doing. Enough of the history lessons. Let's talk something more present. The International Criminal Court has ordered the arrest of President Putin. Do you feel this might have any effect? In a symbolic way, the um, decision by the ICC to uh, charge Putin with these kind of crimes is, is more than even symbolic because he can't go to, I don't know, 132 or so countries without being arrested for, for his crimes. Those countries that have ratified the, the um, ICC agreement is enough to solidify the notion that Putin is not only being condemned by the world itself through the UN auspices, but by the most important criminal court that exists on the planet. Professor, I've heard an argument. People say NATO's expansion into Eastern Europe and an attempt to put a military base in Ukraine, which sort of triggered Putin's invasion, is like the US making an incursion into Russia's sphere of influence. I mean, you could compare that to say China making a play for Mexico. What do you make of, of, of this power dynamic argument? Well, I, I think I have a fairly complicated viewpoint on, on the NATO expansion argument. Um, first of all, Ukraine, historically, at least parts of Ukraine, had once been part of the, the Russia of centuries ago. But, you know, if you look at the world today, every country had that kind of situation. You have to kind of accept history for what it is in our modern time, as opposed to what happened two or three centuries ago. Back in 1945, I happened to be a specialist on this because I wrote a book about the United Nations, the act of civil, sorry, yeah. act of creation. Yeah. And uh, at that time, when Stalin joined the United Nations, he sponsored two other countries to join, Belarus and Ukraine, because he regarded both U Ukraine and Belarus, despite the fact that they were dominated by that, at that time by the Soviet Union as Soviet Union dominated most of Eastern Europe, he regarded those two countries as sovereign countries. So it kind of puts a lie to the idea that Putin suddenly says, well, in all of Russian history, we've never seen Ukraine as an independent country. Well, Stalin regarded it as an independent country in 1945. And when the Soviet Union dissolved around the time that Yeltsin took over, the uh, Ukraine came to an agreement with Russia to, to retain its sovereignty uh, and uh, in exchange it gave up its nuclear weapons. So, I mean, there is a there is legal grounds right now for Ukraine to be seen as its own sovereign nation. However, 
uh, I do think that having Ukraine join NATO is can be seen as provocative because Ukraine is right on the borders of Russia. And because of that past history, Ukraine has always been regarded as friendly to Russia. And so I think I could understand that the Russians would be upset because it does uh, betray the notion of a long history between those two countries. What is happening as the war has increased in violence, uh, there's been more effort, both of course on the Ukrainian side and to some extent on the Western side to rethink that argument and maybe give protection, NATO protection to Ukraine to prevent further incursions by the Russians. Now on the second issue, which is NATO expansion, NATO didn't expand because it wanted to expand. It expanded because Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, East, East Germany all wanted to join NATO. Nobody forced them to join NATO. Why did they want to join NATO? Because they had been, first of all, occupied by the Nazis. And then after the Nazis were kicked out, they were occupied by the uh, Soviets uh, for decades. And, and the last thing they wanted to do is be occupied again by, by the Russians. And the only way they saw them uh, being saved from that is, is to join this uh, transatlantic organization, which had, was protecting Western Europe for, for many decades. You think Poland wants to invade Russia or Romania or Bulgaria? The fact is that when NATO, after the Soviet Union dissolved, NATO invited Russia to become a member. They, they, in fact, they had a kind of um, relationship where Russia went to the NATO meetings and they, they tried to work out a, a, an arrangement. It never worked. I mean, that's a kind of modeled picture, but there was an effort to bring Russia into them. We'll be right back. Are you looking for a talk show featuring leading global voices? Do you want to learn more about how international issues directly affect people locally? Global Connections Television presents the insights of global influencers at no cost to viewers and programmers. GCTV is independently produced and reaches more than 70 million potential viewers worldwide each week. The show covers everything from human rights to climate change, from peace and security to empowering women and girls. It features guests such as Dr. Jane Goodall, former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Mary Robinson, and Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary. The show also hosts expert voices from the private sector, academia, and labor and environmental movements. GCTV is available to public television media outlets, universities, and service clubs for distribution. To watch the show or find out more, click the link in our episode description. Now, back to the show. Let's talk about Africa. Africa has been divided in its support for Ukraine even though the country supplies free grain to the continent through the World Food Program. Dmitry Kuleba, Ukraine's foreign minister, touched on this at a speech in the Security Council in September. 
The issue of responsibility is central to the debate. We need to ensure that behavior like this is punishable. Otherwise, every force in the world, every evil force in the world, will be tempted to follow in Russia's footsteps. I don't need to remind anyone at this table how many forces on the planet would like to question the borders of their neighbors. If Russia can do this, why can't they? Ukraine remains a global food security guarantor. Despite our own dire situation, we decided to provide humanitarian aid to Ethiopia and Somalia, sending them an additional amount of our grains. The minister said there should be no neutrality in the war and everyone should support Ukraine. In October, there was a vote at the General Assembly condemning Russia's annexation of four Ukrainian territories. Ethiopia, one of the countries the minister mentioned as receiving Ukrainian grain after the Black Sea Agreement, abstained from voting. How would you define Africa's you know, division on the war? Um, do you think this is an act of independence? Do you think Africa is getting to that point where in the multilateral scene they are exerting um, their voices? Or do you think it's just a coy uh, to support to either uh, parties in the war for, you know, AIDS? You know, I would, my answer to that would be that it's probably partly all of the issues that you've raised. I mean, each country has its own particular reason for either abstaining or, well, actually mainly abstaining. There is an expression that um, many African countries have is, hey, we're independent, we're sovereign nations. We don't want to get involved in this fight between the two big powers, Russia and the United States. We, we, we want to have good relations with both sides, so we're going to stay neutral. So I think it, it, it's a combination of all those features that um, has kept many of co countries in, in Africa in a neutral status. Professor, before I let you go, um, I just want to know if you had the ear of Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, what would be your advice to him at this point, you know, considering the minefield, the multilateral minefield he is working, you know, working on at this time? What would be your, your counsel to him? I, I was a little distressed when the war first began. I felt Guterres didn't act quickly enough to try to talk peace between Moscow and, and Kiev. Uh, he only kind of woke up to the, the, the um, destructive nature of this war. It took him to a couple of months to kind of re regroup and figure out what the UN should be doing. But I will credit him for doing two important things. He, first of all, was able to arrange for the um, evacuation of Ukrainians trapped under the steel mills in Mariupol. First of all, he spoke out against the invasion by Ukraine, which was brave of him in itself, because most secretaries general stay neutral, number one. And number two, he um, was, was able to arrange with uh, Putin to get grain shipments being made from uh, Ukraine to Africa for their grain supplies out, out of the ports of uh, Odessa and other places. And that is also critical to um, the whole issue of food insecurity throughout Africa. So again, that showed that Guterres was proactive in his uh, attempt to work out a deal 
with P Putin, despite his well-known den denunciation of the Russian invasion. So what I would say is I think Guterres is the perfect playmaker or mediator at this point to try to bring an end to the war. As my understanding is that he is already working with Turkey to behind the scenes to create the conditions for some sort of peace talks. But the problem is that the war has, has been so brutal and so destructive and so cruel that you, you, Ukraine is just at this point unwilling to do any peace talks unless Russia shows some indication that they will withdraw their troops. And Putin has almost placed his entire presidency on the matter of winning this war against Ukraine, fearing that if he can't show some success, he, he'll probably get overthrown or kicked out of office. So it's a real stalemate. And I, it, you know, I find it very difficult to see unless the war finally goes in one direction or the other. And I think right now it's starting to switch back to the Ukrainian direction. Uh, that there's going to be uh, the conditions for peace talks that will lead to any real settlement. But Guterres, at least, I think, is making the effort behind the scenes. And I commend him for that. And I hope he continues to do so. That is the length of an absorbing episode of Unscripted. We looked at the diplomatic and historic ramifications of Russia's war on Ukraine, as well as the ricochets this war is having on bilateral relationships and the future of the Security Council. This episode was presented by Damilola Banjo and Kelechuku Ogu. Kelechuku Ogu was the producer, music was by Poddington Bear, Alison Lecce was the fact checker, and the editor is Dulcie Leinbach. This episode has been made possible with support from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the Open Society Foundation, and you, our generous readers. Unscripted is available where you get podcasts. If you liked today's show, please share it with all your friends and rate us on iTunes. Thank you.